The scripture today is from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I've had two different stints of uh, coaching high school football as an assistant. And in, in one of these coaching stints, the head coach that I was coaching under was a fairly mild man. Uh, he didn't raise his voice. He wasn't one of those yellers and those screamers as a coach. You know, for the most part, he was pretty calm and he was pretty collected. But I'll never forget the, uh, the first week of practice. It was in August. One time we were in the first week of practice and there was a player that we had gotten who transferred from another school. And this player came from a program uh, that I'll just say it this way, was a little bit looser on respecting authority and respecting coaches. It was a program where the players just kind of had their way. And so within the first week of practice and towards the end of one of the practices, this player was just kind of flaunting his cavalier attitude. And, uh, and he flaunted that cavalier attitude in front of the head coach. And this mild manner head coach, who normally kept it together, blew a gasket. He went berserk. He raised his voice. He dressed this player down in front of the entire team, and the entire team was just frozen in shock because of this anger that they saw come out of this coach who they had never seen it come out of before. What was interesting is that by, and, and you know, I had just gotten to know this, I was getting to know this coach, but by his anger that day, I knew what he, what he cared deeply about, and that was respect. He cared deeply about respect. And so when someone disrespected it, he came uncorked. We arrive at a passage where Jesus blows a gasket. Now, I don't want you to, to minimize what happens in the temple, okay? What Jesus did, his righteous anger came out, flipping tab tables over. Right? He created a scene in the temple, and I, I don't think we can really get our minds around what it would have been like to be in that situation. But Jesus' righteous anger came out, and, and we can see in a similar way, that his explosion of righteous anger in the temple 
communicate something about what he cares about, what he's deeply, deeply passionate about. That's why he got upset. Where his zeal is, verse 17. And so the question is, what does Jesus care deeply about? What is he so passionate about? What is he so zealous for that it would cause what we see happen in the temple? And to answer this question, we're going to look at the meaning of the temple, the problem in the temple, and then the fulfillment of the temple. First, the meaning of the temple. When you think about the Old Testament temple, what do you think about? Exodus 26 to 30 uh, describes in great detail the first temple. It was called a tabernacle because it was set up uh, and taken down in the desert with God's people as they moved through the desert. And so Exodus 26 to 30 describes this tabernacle in great detail with colors, with furnishings, with exact measurements of walls and rooms and where altars were placed and the different altars leading to the Holy of Holies and how that room was set up. But in even more detail, you had prescriptions of what the priests would do in the temple, how they would move from altar to altar, what they would do, what the high priest once a year would do in the Holy of Holies. There was incredible detail. And if you're not careful with the temple, you can get lost in the detail and miss the big picture. What was the purpose of the temple? What was the purpose of the tabernacle in the first place? It was the place where God dwelled and met with his people. So you see Israel being rescued out of Egypt, miraculously crossing through the Red Sea, receiving the Ten Commandments from God of how life was designed to be lived. And then God says after that, I want to be with you. I want to live with you. I want to pinch, pitch my tent with you in this desert for the next 40 years. I want to move with you, around with you in this thing called the tabernacle. And so what we see is that the temple, when you back away from the detail, and that's all important when we talk about a holy God and a sinful people, but when you back out big picture, what you see is a God that says, I want to be with you. I created you. I love you. And so the temple is about relationship, relationship between God and his people, that that's the heart of the temple. It begs the question, what was the first temple? What was the first temple in the scriptures? Now, you might run quickly to the tabernacle, right, in the desert. That wasn't the first temple. The first temple was the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt perfectly with the people he had made, where his relationship with humanity was perfect. And you'll see in that garden in Genesis 1 and 2, in that temple, there was no structure with altars and, 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 and sacrifices to be made because why? Sin hadn't destroyed that perfect relationship yet. But the temple starts in the Garden of Eden and it's about relationship. It's a bright neon sign from God saying, I wanna be with you, I wanna live with you, I wanna dwell with you, I love you. That's the meaning behind the temple. Now, if you get lost in the details, though, and you can, when you're reading about the temple, if you get lost in the details, what is meant to be about relationship can become about transaction. In fact, Old Testament, New Testament, you see God calling his people out on that very thing. 
that they have begun living according to this transaction versus a relationship. We see it in, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, when God says to Saul, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, what's God saying there? To obey is better than sacrifice. His people had turned the sacrifices in the tabernacle, the temple, the whole system into this way of, of kind of pleasing God and keeping him happy while retaining their own independence and autonomy to do what they wanted to do. And so it had resulted in these just sinful lifestyles, but they would do their sacrifices to kind of keep God at bay and keep him happy, but then live how they wanted to live. And God said, I don't want your sacrifices if I don't have your heart in your life. And you move to the New Testament, right? You had that scene where the, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus on why he would eat with sinners and not them. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says to him, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What was he saying? Well, the Pharisees of the day were performing, religiously were performing the sacrifices in the temple. They had it down to a T, everything to perfection. And what their question was is, Jesus, aren't you impressed? <laughs> right? Aren't you impressed with us? Look at how how rigorously we are following the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus' response is, no, I'm not impressed at all. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't care about your sacrifices if I don't have your heart in life. Why? Because the beginning of the temple was about relationship. That's where it began. God desiring relationship with his people, to know his people, to love them, to live with them, to dwell with them. And so as soon as, the temple was turned into a transaction, which is what we see happen in this passage. We're gonna to get to it in more detail. Jesus blows up because the temple was about relationship and not transaction. Now, let me, let me dial this into today. I'm gonna to give you some diagnostic questions that, that can begin to help you understand functionally. And I'm speaking of functionally out of your heart, how you can live according to transaction with God versus relationship with God. Let me give you a couple questions that would be worth you pondering that can help you understand this. Do you obey God in order to get things from God? Or do you obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him? Second question, when circumstances in your life go wrong, do you get angry at God or yourself? Or when circumstances go wrong, do you see God exercising his fatherly love within the trial? Third question, does your prayer life consist largely of petition and does it only ramp up when you're in time of need? Or does your prayer life consist of generous stretches of praise and adoration for the purpose of relationship with your heavenly father. You see, the meaning of the temple is relationship. God dwelling with us, us dwelling with God. Now that leads us into the second point. And that is, what then was the problem in the temple that caused Jesus to do what he did? What was the problem in the temple? Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, why were people selling animals and exchanging money? Well, it says it was the Passover, 
which means that's that, that annual celebration of the Jews when they would remember and reflect upon uh, their exodus or their rescue from Egypt. Specifically, that night that God asked them to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that when God passed through the land to bring death to the firstborn of Egypt, he would pass over those homes that had the blood on the doorpost. And so every year from that point on, God said, I want you to celebrate the Passover. Now for us, the Passover has become Lord's Supper, right? But for them, that meant every year going to the temple with an animal to sacrifice as a reminder that the lamb died instead of them. And they would come and they'd have to pay the temple tax. Okay, so one, they needed an animal. That's where the animal merchants come from. Two, they had to pay the temple tax and it was in a certain currency. And so they're coming from all over the region and they needed to exchange their money. That's why. Now, why was Jesus so upset? Verses 15 to 16, look. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what's going on here? There's no evidence that these animal merchants and money changers were, were price gouging. There's just no evidence of that. The problem wasn't that there were animal merchants selling animals and, and money changers exchanging money. The problem is where it was happening. See, it was in the temple. And it had been happening before this time in booths along the roads that would come into Jerusalem, along the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, those slopes. They'd, they'd come in on the roads and there would be booths set up and you could buy an animal. Well, <laughs> the animal merchants realized that, well, why don't we just do it inside the temple? It'd be a lot more convenient right, to just sell these things inside the temple. And so that's exactly what they did. And, and, the, and the temple became this house of trade, this house of transaction. Come purchase your animal, be okay with God, right? It just was a transaction that was going on inside the temple. In Matthew's gospel, the parallel gospel of, uh, of this story, Ma uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew's gospel, my father's house is a house of prayer, not a house of trade not a house of transaction, but a house of prayer, which means a house of relationship, a house of communion with the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't want my Father's house to be a house of convenience and of transaction. I want my Father's house to be a house of communion where my people meet with me. You see here Jesus' passion for worship, the, the right relationship that we have towards God the place where God meets his people, the place of worship had become a house of trade and not a house of prayer. A house of transaction versus a house of relationship. Growing up in, in high school, I had primarily two friends that I spent a lot of time at their houses and two different experiences. I had one friend who lived on uh, a canal just off the intercoastal in South Florida. And she had at her house, it wasn't hers, her parents, a nice boat on a dock right off her backyard. They could go out to the intercoastal and out into the ocean. She had a pool in her backyard. 
She always had, or her parents always had a stocked refrigerator. There was a big room with a pool table. But what was interesting is her parents were very distant. I never connected with her parents. They were just kind of there, but they were distant. There was no relationship. There was one reason that I and my buddies went over to her house. The boat in the back, the pool in the back, the stocked refrigerator, and the pool table. And true confessions. We would even at times butter her up in hopes that she would invite us over so we could play with the toys. My experience there was, it was very much a house of trade. It was a house of consumption. We went over to consume what was there. It was not about relationship. Now, let me tell you about a second friend I had. Me and my buddies would go over to her house a lot. And her house uh, was not on the canal, did not have a boat, uh, did not have a stocked refrigerator, uh, did not have a pool table. But man, her, her parents were the coolest people ever. They were warm. They were inviting. Uh, her dad was awesome. And so when I reflect back, the reason I would go over to, uh, to her house with my buddies was because of friendships and primarily because of relating with her parents and hanging out with her dad. It was a house of relationship. It wasn't a house of trade. And what Jesus is saying here is that my father's house is not a house of trade. It's not a house of consumption and convenience. It is a house of relationship with my father. And let me tell you, my father is awesome. And you need to get to know him. He loves you. He created you. He longs to dwell with you. That's why the temple is here in the first place. Now maybe you can see a little picture of why Jesus lost it, right? This has huge implications for the church. Let me, let me give you some implications. And when I say the church, I mean a community of people that are collectively temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's why Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, I am there, right? Where the church is gathered, where the, the, the collective temples of the Holy Spirit are gathered, right? You have the, the, the dwelling place of God through Christ. Richard Loveless, he, he describes, I think, in a, an amazing way what it looks like for a church to become a house of trade versus a house of prayer or a house of transaction versus a house of relationship where people are gathering to commune with the Father, listen to the Father, obey the Father, go on mission with the Father. Listen to what he says. An unconscious conspiracy arises between the flesh of a pastor and that of their congregation. It becomes tacitly understood that the laity will give pastors places of special honor in the exercise of their gifts. If pastors will agree to leave their congregation's pre-Christian lifestyle undisturbed and do not call for the mobilization of lay gifts for the work of the kingdom. Pastors are permitted to become ministerial superstars. Their pride is fed, their insecurity is pacified, even if they are running ragged and their congregations are permitted to remain herds of sheep in which each has cheerfully turned to his own way. Now, let me try to break this down and describe it, what this means. House of trade, consumption, consumerism. What, what he's describing here is that pastors, elders, leaders, 
can work really hard to meet the consumer needs of the congregants. And the congregants can give the pat on the back, right? Which feeds the pride of the leaders and, and the elders, right? And so what you, what you have here is this house of trade going on, right? So, so, so pastors and elders trade in their hard work to get the affirmation that they so desperately want. And then you have congregants that, that trade in the showing up and, and participating, right? To get their freedom to go do what they want. It's, it's the, uh, and I'll call this the, uh, this is the sickness of the American church. I'm speaking broadly here, right? A church that has become very much um, captured by consumerism. And so you have congregants who are um, operating out of um, this consumer mentality. You have pastors and elders operating out of this pragmatic kind of interaction. And it's this, it's this conspiracy that goes on and produces this, um, this vast amount of just consumer interaction rather than what God wants his church to be, which is not a house of trade where everybody's trading their stuff back and forth to be happy. Rather, God longs for his church to be a house of prayer, a house of relationship where everyone is joining together to pray together, to worship together, to serve together, to go on mission together. There's a togetherness, a relationship with one another, with God. And I'll tell you, at Christ Church East, that takes very, very uh, practical realization on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings at Christ Church East is the, is the, I'll say the baseline of what it means to serve at Christ Church East. And so we ask members to serve on Sunday mornings. Now we have ministries beyond Sunday morning that you serve in, but on Sunday morning, there's a lot that goes on. Right, so you've got the, and, and this is what I'm, I'm describing this for you to see a picture of what it looks like for a, a body of people to serve together. So you've got the Sunday operations team. Those teams arrive at 8 a.m. in the morning, actually earlier than that, 7, 7.30 in the morning to set up so that we can have service. And then they, uh, the teams take down afterwards, upwards till about 1 p.m., right, taking down. You have the Sunday ops team. You got the audio visual team. The reason you can hear me now is because of them. Right, an audio system that gets set up every week gets taken down. So you have this audio visual team. They show up at early, 7.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you've got the musical worship team. They show up early to practice and, and, and use their gifts. You've got the uh, greeters that are out here and they're the warmth and the welcome uh, to people that walk in, the warm arms of Jesus Christ. That They come early and they greet and afterwards they take down and they help clean the coffee pots. They do all of that. You've got the nursery greeters that do the same thing with people coming to drop their kids off. And so you have nursery greeters out there in the hallway, the children's hallway that are welcoming people. And you've got children's worship. You just saw it happen. Our kids every Sunday go out into three classes and there are teachers that lead our children and, and, and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you've got the nursery. That's the largest team we have at this church. Every Sunday, right now it's 12. It's about to go up to 15 adults every Sunday that are in the nursery. Right? Loving our kids, holding babies, praying for them, teaching our kids the gospel at age-appropriate levels, right? That's the largest team we have, and it's going to have to get larger. Do you know that between end of July, well, no, July of this summer and end of the year, about six months, we have at least, it may be more, at least 16 babies that are coming. Now, you do the math. That's three a month. Our infant nursery is about to blow up, <laughs> Okay? And it takes the body of Christ. That's why we, we ask every member to serve in the nursery unless you're serving on another Sunday morning team when you can't do that. But that's why we ask that is because we need a team of people 
that are all in serving together, right? To raise up the next generation and share the gospel with the next generation. Now, what's the solution to the problem of consumerism? And I'll just tell you, it is a, it is a, a, a problem of humanity. Even outside the church, we are consumers because of Genesis 3. What happened there with sin? What's the solution to the problem? And this gets to the last point. It's all wrapped up in the fulfillment of the temple. Look at verse 18. The Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, obviously Jesus wasn't talking about the structure that had taken 46 years to be built. He's talking about the temple of his body, that Jesus was destroyed, he was crucified, and three days later he rose. Jesus was consumed to put to death your consumerism. Jesus was consumed to put to death your religious living that can tend to make God somewhat of a transaction. Jesus was, was consumed to put to death consumerism. You say, how does that, how does it happen? What does it look like? And let me just say, before I dive into what's happening in the temple here in this passage, all your uh, efforts at consumption are really your heart's desire to find satisfaction for your heart, which can only be found in Jesus, right? And so the reason that Jesus Christ puts to death your consumerism is because he is the one that your heart has been looking for in all your efforts to consume. Now, look at the, look at the temples. Think about the situation here. Why did the animal merchants and the money changers move their stuff inside the temple? Like I said, there's no evidence here of price gouging or, you know, I, you don't see any evidence of that. They moved their stuff in the temple because it was more convenient. And, and honestly, because they probably made more money. They just had more business by doing that. Now, the unsaid thing here is that the priests were allowing them to do it. So now you have, we're back to the congregants, pastors. I mean, you see this is all interplaying. So the priests of the temple said, sure, bring your booths in here. It'll be more convenient. Yeah, you'll make some more money probably, more business. And the Jews that are traveling all over from all regions, they'll be happier, right? Because they don't have to carry an animal down the road. And so you see what's happening here in the temple, which is why Jesus went crazy. Everyone's consuming. The animal merchants, the money changers are consuming, being opportunistic to make more money. The Jews are consuming convenience. And, and, the, and the priests are, they're letting it happen because, hey, everybody's happy. They're happy, I'm happy, right? They're happy, they're happy about me. And what you see here in this, in this story and picture of the temple is that everyone in the, in the story is worshiping something other than God. And that's what happens when, when God's house becomes a house of trade. So you've got the, the uh, animal merchants that are worshiping profit. You've got the Jews that are worshiping convenience. You've got the priests that are worshiping approval and affirmation. And it's all coming together in what Richard Lovelace calls this conspiracy, this unconscious conspiracy that I would say of the American church in general or the sickness of the American church 
culture. Now, what is, what is the baseline? Let me try to pare this down. What is the baseline of consumerism that can plague the church? It's this. What's the minimum amount that I need to do to meet God's religious expectations on me while maximizing my rights, my autonomy, and my independence? Right? That, that's the baseline of consumerism. It's what do I need to do to just satisfy God's religious expectations on me while maximizing my independence and my autonomy and my rights. And what we see is that Jesus was put to death to put to death your rights and your autonomy and your independence. Why? Well, Matthew 11 or Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30 says this. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here it is. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, listen, everyone is yoked to something. Every one of us, every person on the face of the earth is yoked to something. You may be yoked to convenience. And by the way, yoke meaning the agricultural picture of two oxen that are pulling a plow and they're yoked together, right? They're moving together. They can't separate. You may be yoked to convenience. You may be yoked to comfort. You may be yoked to success. You may be yoked to, to approval. And what Jesus is saying is those yokes are hard they're heavy, they ultimately lead to death. And Jesus says, I was consumed <laughs> to put those yokes to death so that you would be yoked to me. And guess what? Jesus says, my yoke is light. My yoke is easy. My yoke is joy producing. And now we're back to the very beginning. We're back to relationship because that's what it means to be yoked. To be yoked to Jesus means to be in relationship with Jesus, where the opposite happens from consumerism. I minimize my rights, my autonomy, my independence to maximize Jesus' agenda and Jesus' mission in my life. That's what it means to be yoked to Jesus. The temple in Old Testament Judaism, it always pointed to a greater reality. It, all, it always pointed to a better and final meeting point between God and man. And Jesus Christ is that meeting point. Jesus Christ is the place where God and man meet. But for us on this side of the cross and resurrection, of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's even a greater final meeting point between God and man that we look forward to. It's come in Jesus, but we look forward. Listen to how Revelation describes it. In Revelation 21, John, who writes Revelation, says this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, the temple was always pointing forward to this glorious end when there would be no more need for a temple because the glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth will shine on his people directly. 
And so the temple was pointed forward. But you've got, in, in the story of redemption, you've got a lot happening in between. You go from temple of the garden to tabernacle to the te physical temple to Jesus to the church to the new heavens and new earth. Right, that the church now is the embodiment of Christ by the Spirit. And the place where, where God and, and man meet with Jesus as the head of the church and as the church being the body of Christ. So I close by asking the question again, what is Jesus passionate about? What does Jesus really care about that would cause him to lose it in this temple that had gone corrupt and become a house of trade? He cares about his church. He's passionate about his church, which is his body. He's the head. That his church would not be a house of trade and transaction, but a house of prayer, a house of relationship, a house of communion with its people, yoked to one another and yoked to him. Being the church and not doing church. And I'll close with that thought. There's a big difference between doing church and being the church. Doing church leads to transaction and convenience. Being the church leads to mission and relationship and communion. Let's pray. Father, we confess our tendency to relate to you out of transaction to make the Christian life about a series of transactions rather than a, a deep relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for the gospel promise to all of us that are guilty of that. The promise that your yoke is easy and light. And that when you came and died and rose from the dead, that you came to put to death our consumption, our consumerism. That seeing you consumed on our behalf, that we would be yoked to you and find joy and find the joy of doing mission together and of serving together and of doing community together and doing life together. Father, would you draw us to yourself? And I pray there may be some here that all, all along have seen Christianity as, as somewhat of a transaction. Some life you get later for turning in something now. And I pray that you would draw their hearts to you, Father, that they would see Christianity about relationship, not transaction. Father, that our hearts would rest in you. They would rest in you, Jesus, and that you would, by your spirit, cause Christ Church East to be a house of prayer, a house of relationship, a house of communion, a group of broken, sinful people together, yoked to Jesus, serving one another and serving you and serving this city and serving this world, that we would see more and more your kingdom come to bear, moving towards that day that we read in Revelation 21, when there will be no sun or no moon, but the glory of God will shine on us directly. And Father, may that future reality stir us today to live in light of it. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.